In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I want to start off by uh, rereading a couple verses that we already heard from Hebrews. The word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is what the word of God does. It cuts us to the core. It reveals our secrets. It lays us bare. Uh, as Father Martin often says, we are hammered out on the anvil of scripture. So I pray it may be so this morning as well. In our gospel passage, a man ran up to Jesus and asks how to inherit eternal life. Jesus answers, you know, follow the commandments. It's interesting, though, the list of commandments that Jesus gives. They're all from the Ten Commandments, adding don't defraud, potentially as just a commentary on don't steal, but only half of the Ten Commandments. He leaves out the first four, which have to do with our relationship to God, and the tenth, covetousness. So when the man professes his total obedience to those, Jesus follows up with one more thing, that the man should sell everything he has, give it to the poor, and follow him. As if Jesus, looking at this man, saw the role that money had taken in his life and knew it held too high a position. Perhaps having no gods before Yahweh, not making an idol, not taking the Lord's name in vain, keeping the Sabbath, and avoiding covetousness were all summed up in that single challenge. The man is sad and refuses because of all of his possessions. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, as a kid, this story lodged itself into my consciousness pretty heavily. It wasn't on my mind all the time, but I do have this vivid picture in my mind of what I felt called to do in light of it. I must have been eight or nine years old. At that age, you don't exactly have a great abundance of wealth or possessions to give up. But there was one thing that probably filled all the same places in my heart as the riches of the young man did in his. One idol that sat on my heart's throne. And so... As a kid, I had this mental image of what God called me to do, this radical faithfulness, which involved me grabbing the Super Nintendo, ripping it from the television and taking it, cables dragging behind me to a window, and casting it and its claim on my heart into the abyss from which it came. Now, I never actually had my St. Francis moment with the Super Nintendo. Uh, maybe it was due to cowardice, weak will, or maybe it was the recognition that my Super Nintendo was actually our Super Nintendo belonging to my two older brothers and me, and I'm not sure they were quite on board yet with my plan for piety. <laughs> but I think if I had articulated this notion to anyone, if I had tried to say, Tim, Jeremy, we have something we need to do, they might have told me, no, Andrew, that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not the kind of riches Jesus is addressing. No, Andrew, you aren't that rich. This is about someone else, which is probably true. But I think it's become our default interpretation for this passage. It's our go-to response. When we hear about the difficulty that the rich have in entering the kingdom of heaven, yeah, those rich people are going to have a hard time. But here's the thing. You are rich. You may not think you're rich, but you are rich. How do I know? Well, rich is sort of a relative term. You don't feel rich when you can look around and see richer people around you. If you can look out and say, there are other people who have more possessions than I do, I must not be the rich. But our perspective is kind of skewed. I've lived in two different suburban neighborhoods in the Midwest, and when I moved to Wheaton after living uh, in Berea, just outside of Cleveland, I discovered 
that the standard of living here is significantly higher than there, but people have the same basic attitude, this sense of generic middle-classness. We have some money, but we aren't rich. Maybe you fudge it a little and you use the term upper middle class, acknowledging your wealth without wanting to saddle yourself with that term rich. We're upper middle class, we're not wealthy, it's fine. There are other people who are rich. But to give some perspective, the median household income here is double the national median and 10 times the global median. And I can't speak to everyone's economic situation in this room, but I think if you have access to food, healthcare, leisure activities, when you're concerned with how frequently or what type of vacation you might go on, and not whether someone in your house will have to skip a meal so that everyone can eat. When last week's gospel readings where Jesus tells his disciples not to worry about food or clothing are difficult to contextualize into your life because while you may worry about what you eat or drink or wear, you never worry whether you will eat or drink or be clothed or sheltered. I think you can consider yourself rich, or at least, if you don't want to use that word, at risk of allowing the multitude of our possessions to get in the way of following Jesus. But we don't want to acknowledge that, because then we'd have to come to terms with the fact that Jesus said, it's hard for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. Maybe we're the first who are going to be last. Maybe when Mary hears that she's pregnant with the Messiah, and she issues this beautiful song, the Magnificat, the hungry will receive good things, and we are sent away empty. It may be the love of money that's the root of all evil and not money itself, but the warnings about riches throughout Scripture should cause those of us who live with relative wealth, whatever that might be, to take a really hard look and see whether or not we, like the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai, have erected a golden statue and said, this is who brought us out of Egypt. Have we made possessions the thing in which we put our trust and hope? I think we also misunderstand Jesus' words when we believe that he's talking exclusively about eternal life in the sense of what happens after we die, about how we get into the cloudy city. Jesus does speak about future events. He says, how hard will it be for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? But he doesn't just care about a distant future, but about the present age as well. How hard is it to enter the kingdom of heaven? And when Peter responds, maybe a little bit self-satisfied, saying that they and the disciples had given up a great deal for Jesus. Jesus tells them that those who gave up those things will receive much greater rewards, family, fields, etc., in this present age, as well as the age to come. Now, he also mentions that they come with persecutions to hint that what he's talking about isn't simply buying into Jesus' corporation and getting your investment back double. There's something different about it. In fact, if we look through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' whole message is that the time had come, that the kingdom of God was near, that heaven, the place where God dwells and where everything is as it ought to be, was not just overlapping now on earth with the temple on Mount Zion, but in the Son of Man. And now, for those of us who live on the other side of Pentecost, in everyone in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. That's what it means that we're temples of the Holy Spirit. And so those who follow Jesus have a foretaste of the life of the world to come, even now. And the good things of that life might just look a little bit different than the good things that this world has to offer. Our relationship to wealth isn't just a test that we get graded on on Judgment Day, although I imagine that will be part of it. The way we relate to and use wealth we have is the kingdom of God breaking in even now. And we get a picture of this nowness in our reading from Amos as well. 
When Amos tells the people of Israel to seek the Lord and live, he's talking about avoiding a judgment that was very imminent. Uh, we get a nice picture of it in those verses that the lectionary conveniently pulls out. The collaborators of the lectionary don't always love to have people standing up here issuing plain readings of judgment. But go ahead and read Amos and read exactly what that judgment was that he was talking about. And that happened very shortly after Amos's time. In fact, the whole Old Testament has some references to eternity. We see some pictures at the end of Isaiah of a life of the world to come. And they anticipated a future when everything would be set right. But the message of the Old Testament, especially from the prophets, had much more to do with God showing up right then in time and in space, in blessing for righteousness and in curses for disobedience. There was an expectation of a Messiah to show up in time and space. And that's why when Jesus shows up, God sends a Messiah to a time and a place not eventually later. Even future events were expected to happen now. God was then, and we can assume has continued to be now, very much concerned with this age as well as the age to come. As I was reading Mark's gospel this week, there's something that stuck out to me. I think I often heard Jesus' response to the rich young man as upset, cold, and judgmental, that he sort of saw him, that he was rich. You have to give up your riches. He didn't. He's like, well, too bad for you part of that growing up assuming you're not rich. But Mark tells us that Jesus heard the young man, heard that he had kept all the commandments, saw him, and loved him. I think as a starting point, Jesus offers an abundant life to those who follow him because he loves us. And the life he wants to offer, the life now and to come, is abundant indeed. And it's abundant even when it doesn't match our modern ideals of the good life. And I want to look at two facets of that way of life one personal and one sort of broader and social. I think when Jesus commented on the difficulty for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, I think he was grieved. I don't think he was upset. I think he was saddened because he loved that young man. And so he says that, that statement in my sort of sanctified imagination, as we might call it, with tears in his eyes. I'm not suggesting my imagination is sanctified and yours isn't. It's just a fun play of words. Anyways, I think Jesus sees him, loves him, and says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. He sees the way in which the man's possessions keep him from following Jesus, and he just thinks of the abundant life that wouldn't be had. I think about the words in the parable of the sower, about the seed that fell on good soil but was choked up by weeds. And when Jesus explains that parable to his disciples, he says, the seed was like the gospel being received in soil, just like the good soil, our sort of last piece of soil. It's not the rocky ground. It's good soil, it grows, but then the cares of the world and, quote, the deceitfulness of wealth get in the way. Wealth can and will distort our view of what is actually good, true, and beautiful. It will and it does come alongside the good that goes on in our lives, and it chokes out that kind of life that God desires for us to live now. It will take those good things that God calls us to do and tell us they're not profitable, they're not lucrative, or maybe that's irresponsible with our wealth. They do not lead to a good life. Wealth will ask us to make small compromises, one at a time, to dull our sense of God's calling on our lives. Wealth doesn't come at you all at once. It persistently whispers lies into your ear until you come face to face with what God calls you to do and we turn away like that young man because of the abundance of our possessions. The warnings in scripture about riches are clear and while there is some sense that riches are a blessing, it's almost always a blessing to be given away. The preferential option for the poor, as some people call it from scripture, is very real. 
It's why we like Matthew's tale of the Beatitudes or Matthew's account where we say, blessed are the poor in spirit and not Luke's where Jesus says, blessed are the poor and woe to the rich. But our love of money doesn't just affect our own personal devotional lives. It affects others as well. Now, for some, that might manifest in terms of direct injustice, of stealing from someone or directly denying someone wages, a sort of one-to-one interaction. But I want to look at the kind of sin that Amos was calling out to give us some other ideas about how wealth can do damage to this world. In the book Amos, the shepherd-turned-prophet speaks of injustice at the gates. Now, the gates are where elders gather to bring people together and settle disputes. It's sort of a, a law court of sorts. And Amos speaks of an economic system in which the poor are taxed so the rich can increase their wealth. He's not talking about individual acts of unrighteousness, but systemic sin, a whole justice structure which perverted justice so much that it became like poison, like wormwood, where the sensible person, as John Goldengay's translation puts it, keeps their mouth shut because no one would listen, because they reprove the one who speaks the truth. Now, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds with attempts at one-for-one comparisons between ancient Near Eastern economic and justice systems and our own. I'm an expert in neither, and there are enough differences to keep us from jumping with simple comparisons. But this I can say. God, through Amos, seems incensed at systems in which there is disparity about how different groups of people are treated, and especially the poor. God is rarely incensed on behalf of the rich. He is regularly incensed on behalf of the poor and marginalized. The Old Testament law is clear about treating every person the same. The foreigner and the immigrant who wanted to live in the land were treated just like the sons and daughters of Israel. And again, I have no interest in ham-fisted attempts to force the particulars of the Mosaic law into a modern American context. But I think it isn't a stretch to think that God's very real concern for social and structural systems to treat people fairly and equally continues now that he didn't lose that concern at the cross. And if you truly believe that we live in a proper meritocracy, if you think the world in which we live right now has reached its perfection in systemic issues, where everyone has equal access to economic systems and treated the same by our justice system, I just think you have to look more closely. Um, Chicago itself is marked by a dark history of significant racial discrimination in judicial and financial sectors that continues to have aftershocks today. I won't go through them. If you want, I'll send you an email with plenty of articles. And I think if God hated it then, he hates it now too. I once heard from someone that giving applications to messages is foolish because to apply means to put something on the surface. And so any application you give to someone is just to take biblical teaching and put it on the surface of their lives rather than allow the word of God to cut us to our cores, as Hebrews tells us it does. And so I don't have answers or solutions or policies or candidates to recommend today, Uh, at least not from the pulpit. I have personal (laughs) opinions, but I won't do that from here. And that's largely because I think the problem of the deceit of wealth and the way it convinces us to say no to the call of Christ on our own ways of life, including how we passively and actively support systems that keep our neighbors oppressed, I think that problem is deep and personal. I think we need the word of God to cut through the mess and expose the greed and indifference in all of our lives. I think it would do all of us a lot of good to reflect on those four commandments that Jesus summed up in his call for the rich man to give away his riches. Only having one God, not creating an idol, keeping the Lord's name holy, keeping the Sabbath holy. I think reflecting on those and the way that money might 
take God's place in each of those commandments. Reflecting on it might do us all a lot of good, myself included. But we need not despair. There is some good news to close us out here. Because I think just after the writer to Hebrews talks about the power of God's word in cutting us to our cores, the writer immediately says that because of this, we ought to cling to Jesus, the high priest, the one who mediates between us and God, who has gone through what we have gone through, yet without sin, and who helps us in our time of need. And when it comes to the deceitfulness of wealth, I believe for many of us the time is now. And so we need to receive from Jesus. This call has been made on our lives, and we need help even now to do what God asks us to do. And on top of that, not only just help to do what is right, to, to receive grace as well. We're going to confess our sins in a moment and hear absolution that those who confess are forgiven. And we're going to receive from God's table the grace that we need. And so all of us need to turn to Christ and be honest, exposing ourselves to the word of God so that God can do the work that he wants to do with us. And so I pray today that God would help us to see those things that we're holding fast to instead of him, to cast them aside, to follow him whatever it costs, so that we might receive back a more abundant life, even now and also in the age to come. Amen.